Hey, this is sort of a weird one because I'm talking into my phone. I'm doing a phone episode, a mobile episode, but I'm in my kitchen. I just don't feel like plugging my computer into my recording gear. So sort of a hybrid episode. It's a mobile episode in my own kitchen. I was thinking, though, about guns. You know, that topic isn't very hot right now. I mean, it probably will be. There's some stuff going on you know, involving police and all of that right now, but the actual gun conversation isn't too active right now. And as I said before, my stance isn't pro-gun or anti-gun, it's just gun. Guns exist and we're not getting rid of them, so I acknowledge that guns are here. And there's no real equation or math to do I acknowledge that they're here and they're not going anywhere. It's like, are you pro-sword or anti-sword? I'm just sword. I'm just gun, I'm just sword. I know they're here and I know they're not going anywhere and I'm not a gun owner. I'm not opposed to becoming one if it feels right. And I, I have friends who are gun owners. I grew up going to people's houses, going hunting with friends who owned a variety of guns and I don't know what my stance is you know I don't I, and in terms of like I don't I don't know what my stance is as far as what the right approach is because I'm very open to the idea of deeper background checks putting in stricter measures but I'm not into the idea of banning guns and I'm not sure how I feel about even banning specific types of guns because you know there's some people who they're fine with hunting rifles and handguns, but not assault rifles. But where I kind of intuitively rest on that is that if any one person, whether they be military, whether they be government, anybody who owns a certain type of gun, well, rather, if, if somebody owns a certain type of gun, I'm sort of of the opinion that anybody should be able to own that gun. If the military, and maybe that's a, a bad argument, because it's like, well, the military has nuclear weapons, so that means everybody should be able to have nuclear weapons. And on a national level, maybe that's the right thing. Maybe it's better that every country does have nukes. I don't know. I'd rather just not have nuclear weapons at all. And I mean, I love, and, and just to go off on a another anti-science tangent, even though I've made it clear that I'm very open and I love the scientific process, but I don't like the cult of science that is developed. Uh, but it's funny to me, like one of the criticisms I have of science is that who created guns? Who innovates? Who created nuclear weapons? There's this tendency, scientists will basically open the door and give humans the capacity to do these horrible things. And even if that's not what they intended, it's still they they got the ball rolling and in fact in many cases they created the ball itself but then they tend to back away when that ball turns out to be a wrecking ball and no they're not the person at the controls they're not the one at the joystick if that's even what it's called you know the wrecking ball <laughs> the gears of a wrecking ball are those called joysticks probably not the joystick what a word joystick um, but, you know, the scientists themselves, they're not necessarily the ones at the controls of the wrecking ball, but they created the wrecking ball, even if it wasn't intended to wreck something. 
but there's this tendency for science to take credit for scientists because science has nothing to do with this. My, my criticism is not with the scientific process because I think it's incredible and interesting. But there's this tendency within the cult of science, within scientism, to take credit for the benevolent byproducts of science, medicine, all kinds of things. But then to distance themselves from the negative outcomes, the negative developments that come from the scientific process, that come from deliberately messing with nature, you know? And, and so that's one of my criticisms. Uh, you know, who, who knew that this would turn into another uh, critique of, of scientism? But, you know, that's the thing with nukes, you know, where, you know, that... Who's responsible? We think of this as, oh, the military. You know, I can tell you what, soldiers, you know, they didn't create nuclear weapons. You know, even generals didn't create the nuclear weapons. You know, it's that came from scientific innovation. Uh, so I don't know how I feel about nukes. You know, I don't I don't feel like nukes should exist at all. And that is the it's it's the classic science fiction. It's the classic science fiction dilemma where you create something and you intend for it to be used for good or for something interesting or fascinating. It's, it's curiosity. You know, curiosity didn't kill the cat. It turned the scientist into a, a, a demon, I guess. But uh, I don't know. It's just I don't even think nuclear weapons should exist, but I acknowledge that they exist. In the same way that I'm not pro-sword or anti-sword, I'm just sword. I'm not pro-gun or anti-gun. I'm just gun. I'm not pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear. I'm just nuclear. We're not getting rid of them anytime soon. And so once you acknowledge that, you can start to work from a much more rational viewpoint. But that said, to go back to the gun thing, I don't really have a, a clear cut. I don't have advice. All I know is how I feel about it. All I know is that I know we're not getting rid of guns, and as long as somebody has a certain caliber of weapon, my, my general gut is that other people should be able to have that too. It's, it's fairness, you know? And, uh, but I, I had a friend, and I would still consider him a friend, but I haven't seen him or spoken to him in years, probably three years now. And he, he's a guy who, radically far left... But one of the most rational, like, and he really, he would identify with that. I wouldn't, I try not to call somebody, I try not to describe somebody based on a political viewpoint if they themselves don't identify with that. You know, I don't, I don't want to say that somebody is radical, a radical leftist, but this guy would very much, he, he identified that way and most of his viewpoints were consistent with that. Because I wouldn't want to be called one thing or another. You know, I don't identify one way or another with a political viewpoint. And I wouldn't want to be called one thing or another because of that. But when someone identifies that way, I have no problem describing them, them that way. But this guy, you know, as much as, as radical leftists do rightfully get a bad rap, this guy was one, but he, he was always very rational. And we always had some very interesting discussions and one of his viewpoints that, you know, I still think about sometimes when the gun control debate comes up was 
he was pro gun, but coming from a place and he was not a gun owner, but he was coming from a place of he felt that minorities, oppressed minorities should have guns as a matter of protection. And I, I'd never heard that viewpoint expressed that clearly, where any and he had an entire rationale for it. And what's interesting is that's the same exact argument that the militiamen use. It's the same argument that the NRA uses, because of course, even though even though the NRA and the militias are largely white and not necessarily oppressed, they of course feel oppressed. Everybody can find, just like you can justify anything in this world, you can always find a reason to feel oppressed. And that's, you know, one of the arguments behind the NRA, behind the militias, and it's written into the Constitution or, or one, of the, one of those documents. It's written into one of them documents, but that's their rationale as well, is that it's, it's a way of keeping tyranny in check. And I can't think of a better argument for guns than that. Again, you know, in the same way that I, I said that if, if somebody else can own an assault rifle, you should be able to as well. And that includes the military. And uh, But my friend's argument, it, it was interesting because it was specifically motivated by the idea that minorities need, you know, a way to protect themselves or a way to, even if it's not protection, just a way to, to maintain some sort of equal, you know, to have, to, have, to have the ability to use an equal force, I suppose. Uh, and, and it's just interesting, though, because it was focused on, on minority groups, but it's interesting how that plays into the same rationale that the even you know, these, these nationalist militia groups use. And, uh, and so, so to me, like, I agree with that viewpoint, but I wouldn't differentiate between the type of person who is allowed to own a gun. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm pro-gun because I think this group should have guns. I think that's a good rationale because, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's personal, I suppose. And the person, this guy, the, his, the guy I'm talking about, the old friend, he, uh, he wasn't, he was, you know, mixed race himself. Uh, so he was kind of coming from that point of view as well, to some degree. And interestingly, he and I, one time, we ran into a friend of his and closed out a bar and went to his friend's apartment. And his friend showed us his gun collection. Actually, I had two different gun experiences with this guy. One was like a friend of his was hanging out with us and we went and hung out at, at an apartment and this friend was like, Oh yeah, by the way, you know, I have a concealed weapons permit and he pulled out the gun and we, we passed the gun around and just examined it safely. I mean, alcohol was involved, so you can question whether that was the right decision or not, but we all just kind of examined the gun safely as safe as a bunch of drunk guys could do. And so that was interesting and it was kind of fun, you know, it was kind of, you know, that's something that it's probably done very casually among certain types of people but for us for me it's like it's not it's not normal to close out a bar and then pass a, a handgun around and it was interesting to know this guy that i was hanging out with the whole night this friend of a friend just had a gun in his waistband or his pocket i mean he, he might have had it secured 
wasn't just tucked into his waistband, but still he had this gun on him at the bar, which I, I think is illegal. I don't think you're, even with a concealed weapons permit, I don't know that it's legal to have a handgun and I'm not naming names. I'm not even going to name the bar. But then on another occasion, we met another friend of this friend of mine and this guy didn't have a gun on him, but we started talking about guns and we went to this guy's apartment and he showed us his entire gun collection and we passed those around. So it's just funny, you know, it's like this friend of mine who was a, a just a complete radical leftist and had a very nuanced opinion on guns and wasn't a gun owner himself, managed to be this like drunken gateway to handling firearms after closing out bars, which is, is really funny. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was just a funny experience. And it shows you, too, though, that the things aren't very black and white. You know, people can have nuanced opinions, even people that you might disagree with on a number of issues, because I did find that even though I wouldn't say that my stance on gun control revolves around specific groups having access to firearms, the general rationale, I, th I think, is the most compelling rationale for owning guns, which is, you know, to protect yourself in some capacity. And that includes from tyranny, that includes from oppression, from whoever. And, uh, you know, and most people are okay with the idea of people owning guns for self-defense, for hunting, I mean, for decoration, you know, I mean, guns are a great decoration in the same way that putting a sword on your wall is a cool decoration, having a gun rack, having, or like an antique firearm on display. That's very cool. I think guns are aesthetically attractive, even though I don't own one. I think that guns are very aesthetically attractive. So even just on a decorative level, I think it's, it's a interesting thing. It's interesting to see a gun. And when, I, when we were passing these guns around these these nights, you know, it was it was cool. There's something cool about it. And I grew up around people who had guns. And uh, I thought it was cool then. I don't know. It's not that I think what the gun does to a human body is cool. But there's something about that technology that is interesting to me. And if it's interesting, well, when I say something's cool, that's all I mean. It's interesting. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting to see right now how these hot topics are being shaped by the current situation. And it's treacherous in a way. It's treacherous territory because when people don't feel good, when they are scared in their normal mundane existence, that can lead to increased hostility. It often does. Even just on a minor level, even just in traffic, people are more prone to road rage. They're more prone to snapping at their wife, getting mad at their kids, whatever it is. But right now, with people feeling shut in, with people feeling limited in some way, and with people scared about their own fate, when you throw these hot-button issues into it... Um, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's almost chemical. It's almost like mixing chemicals. And we live in a whole new time. We live in a whole new day and age. And as much as what's old is always new again, even though things change visually, even though aesthetics change, even though culture changes, even though technology evolves, you know, s s 
there isn't that much new stuff that happens in terms of, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's new and what's not. Who am I to say that what's old is new again? That's just kind of how I feel. Um, but, you know, we are in a new age. You know, and as much as there are cycles and as much as humans do stay relatively similar and our motivations stay in many ways the same, we do have new chemicals being mixed right now because we're, for one, connected much more deeply than we ever were before on a wider level. Maybe, maybe that connection is actually not deep it's spread thinner because, you know, we're connecting with people online. We're connecting with people through phones. But when I say deep, I just mean we have many more avenues for connection, but also disconnection. And my first impulse, you know, with the whole lockdown thing, here we get, we're getting current eventy. As if you can avoid talking about it, you know. <laughs> it's, it's my version of the example I always use of like when there's the loud plate crash when you hear plates crash in the kitchen of a restaurant and everybody turns their head, how it's like, I want to just pretend it didn't happen. I want to, you know, I, I'm oppositionally defiant about it where I'm like, I'm not going to look. Everybody's looking at the sound. We all know what it is. We all know that a waiter or a prep cook dropped a plate. So why are we all looking like we don't know what it is? You know, it, but it's it gets into that where it's like it's you can't avoid certain current events. And the more you try to avoid them, the more the more you almost revolve around them, the more they almost impact you if you don't address them. So it's kind of like that, but you know, with everything going on right now, there's connection happening, but there's also disconnection. And that's just the reality of interacting with people. Familiarity breeds contempt. You might have the best relationship in the in the world when you and your girlfriend live apart. You know, you might, just, everything is just smooth. You guys got a good system down. You guys got a, you know what I like about your relationship? You just got a great system. You live in your place and you live in your place. You see each other on the weekends. But then you move in together and suddenly there's this disconnection and familiarity breeds contempt. It's just, it's inevitable. And I, I think because it's inevitable, knowing how to work around that contempt and not letting it become malignant. You know, catching it at the roots. In the same way that you can catch your own negative feelings at the roots and manage them. You can't get rid of those impulses necessarily, but you can manage them at the roots more easily. I think it's the same thing for the way you interact with another person, especially intimately, where you can catch those feelings at the roots and be like, oh, I'm getting annoyed or frustrated with this person. Again, as always, easier said than done. But if you can say it, you can eventually you know, turn that into a mantra. If you remember that so many, th you know, when, when someone says easier said than done, which I point out a lot because it is easier to say things than do them. But, you know, the thing about that phrase is that when you do say them enough, it becomes a part, it's kind of like Napoleon Hill, you know, think and grow rich where that book is so significant, not because it's a self-help book about making money and becoming the next Carnegie, you know, it's not necessarily for that reason, but it, he really understood, you know, how you can put messages, you can, you can give your, you can send messages to your subconscious that might not resonate with you. They might not seem, 
you might not think it's for you. You might tell yourself something and you just think, I don't really believe that. But if you say it enough, especially if you put it in writing or say it out loud, it starts to become a part of your subconscious and then you start behaving in a way that reflects that. Or you start orienting yourself in a way that makes that a reality and you don't even realize you're doing it because it's part of your subconscious. You don't have to say it out loud anymore. And so you can catch yourself with that where it's like easier said than done, but keep saying it. I think that's the aspect of that phrase that's missing. Easier said than done, but keep saying it and you might very well do it. Or at least come close. You might be on well on your way to doing it. It might be that most distant shore. It might be that unattainable Christ-like perfection. But you're going to be on your way, and if you're on your way, that's better. But it's the same thing with catching things at their roots, and I think right now is an important time to consider that, where people are connecting right now, and I'm seeing a lot of people who are, a variety of people who are really just hammering on staying open-minded and positive and loving, loving kindness. I'm seeing people who already are oriented toward that, but they're really, they're sticking to that message. And there's people who turn around and they are spiteful about that. They'll say, oh, well, you can preach compassion because you're a, a middle-aged white Karen woman. And you have, you have a, a, a nice house and a, and a swimming pool. And what you're saying just, it doesn't apply to somebody stuck in a housing project with 10 people, you know, and that's true. Perspective is crucial and you should know who you're talking to, you know. So when you say, oh, just think positive, just think positive, that's a good message. But, you know, also consider where your audience is coming from and you can't magically cure a depressed person with a platitude otherwise we wouldn't have depression and a depressed person sees a cliche or a platitude about positivity or gratitude and it, it seems it seems foreign and it doesn't just seem foreign it seems offensive they almost they take it personally and I think that's one of the core issues is taking things personally and of course we do of course we take things personally it's what we know. You're a you. And as a you, you're an I. Behind every you is an I. And because of that, you're going to take things personally, even when you don't need to. Even when they're not directed toward you, you're going to take things personally. And it's okay. I mean, it's, it's through personalizing things that we make sense of them. But you can also let go of those things. And even if something is personally directed at you, why does, does, does that belong to you? Does that belong in your mind? You know, and it's like another version of that is if you find out that somebody doesn't like you or gossips about you or has some ill will toward you. And as long as they're not doing anything to directly interfere in your life, and you could say that gossiping about you is interference because they're they're trying to ruin your reputation or, or something to that effect. But but uh, 
you know, but I'm talking about like that, you know, it, it depends, you know, it's not a black and white issue, but it's like, unless someone is directly interfering in your life, you don't need to do anything about it. And in fact, you should do nothing and you shouldn't even think about it. You know, if you read it, it's like a negative review because we think of reviews as this thing that's based around entertainment some sort of creative product you made something or someone made something and it's getting reviewed someone's a critic someone is a critic of, of what you did or something you were involved in and that means that you need to think about it and care about it and do you you know there's a lot of people a lot of successful people who don't read reviews and of course, when someone reaches a certain level of success, they get a lot of reviews and they would not continue to be successful. They might not even be successful to begin with if they spent all their time reading reviews about themselves or about something that they were somehow connected to. And that should tell you everything you need to know because people review other people. People are giving reviews of other people constantly. It's like someone comes up in a conversation and it's like, oh, well, I don't like him. And it, they might as well be talking about a movie. Someone brings up a movie and they're like, I don't like it. I didn't like it. And people do that with an equal amount of passion. People will talk about a movie with an equal amount of passion to the way they talk about another person. And sometimes, you know, some people are more considerate. Some people... If someone brings up a movie they like, someone might say, oh, you know, they, they might kind of hem and haw until they know what the other person thought of it because they don't want to be disagreeable. And it's the same thing with people where sometimes someone will mention a person and someone kind of like gives sort of a neutral response until they know why that other person is bringing them up. And then once they once the gates are open and they know how that other person feels, then they can say, I hate him too. I hated it too. I hated that movie and I hated that actor. But we give these reviews of each other and even if we don't give them out loud, we think of them. We're constantly reviewing each other. And I don't think it's that different from a movie review. And that should tell you something about the way we view each other. That we don't view each other necessarily as people, but we view each other as some sort of sensory experience. We, we, you know, Batman's giving a review of a squirrel or a bird. I can't tell which. What's the difference? What's the difference between a squirrel and a bird? Um, but, uh, you know, there's flying squirrels. Because there's flying squirrels, they're kind of like birds. Anything that flies to me is a bird. But, uh, you know, we, we tend to give these reviews and it shows you how we view each other. The fact that we feel that we need to review a person and we need to review a movie and we need to give our opinion. And our opinion matters because it's ours. It's mine. It's mine. And we do that with important, like, political issues as well. To go back to that, we do that with gun control, where when you have an opinion on gun control, what you're basically saying is... Here's my review. Here's my review of guns. And of course, it's more serious than that. You know, when, we're, when we give our review on that, we are talking about life and death and pain and suffering 
and rights and laws and all of these complicated things that nobody's ever really figured out. So obviously you're going to figure it out. It's taken society thousands of years. It's taken, it's taken us since the beginning of time to figure this shit out and we still haven't figured it out, but you're going through. You're going to figure it out. In fact, you already did. I'm so glad you figured it out. I'm so glad to know you. You figured it out. And if I ever want somebody to take one thing from this show, one thing, it's that I haven't figured anything out. And that's not false modesty. I like what I say. I believe in most of what I say most of the time. But, but, and I'm pacing around my kitchen here. And you know if I'm pacing around my kitchen, I'm serious. I feel like that's where, aside from just going on walks out in the, the great outdoors, I feel like I do some of my best thinking in the kitchen. But that said, my best thinking still isn't the answer. I still haven't figured things out. I still haven't perfected this whole life thing. I really haven't. And But, but people tend to be like, well, here's my anti-gun review. I give guns one star. I'm going to give it a half a star. I'm going to give guns five stars. I give guns five stars. You know, we, we tend to approach things like we're reviewing everything. Every We're a critic and we're reviewing everything. That's what we do, and I do it. This show, this might as well be a review show unto itself. I used to want to be a critic. I used to want to review. I used to review things. Both, you know, like I, 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 I was a editorialist for my high school newspaper and I used to review things and I used to review life I used to write rants you know I would my teacher loved me we had, I had a close relationship to my English teacher my sophomore year and she happened to be the high school newspaper advisor and it was a class you know it wasn't something you had to do after after hours it was actually like a period during your day newspaper class and she loved me, so I got away with, I'm not going to say murder, since we're talking about guns here. I don't want to say I got away with murder. I got away with basically just writing these long rants about things both related to school and not related to school. And I, I would also review things. I remember writing some music reviews, things like that. Uh, I would hate to read that shit now. I hate to read it. It'd be painful for me. I would suffer, actually. <laughs> it wouldn't just be painful. I would suffer if I had to read what I wrote for the high school newspaper half my life ago. I mean, that was half my life ago now. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm someone who is a, nat I'm a, I'm a natural critic. I like to give my opinions. I like to editorialize. And I didn't write, I never wrote a single thing for the high school newspaper that was a... I never did any actual journalism for the paper. Everything I ever did in the two years I was on the pa the newspaper team, the two years I was on the newspaper team, I all I did is rant and rave. And people liked it, you know, I gotta say. People liked it. Some people didn't. One time I wrote, and they did this thing to us, and this is just getting into some weird, like, personal high school history, but I wrote this one article about when the school lied to us, we were seniors 
And they told us if we passed this statewide test, it was called the WASL, W-A-S-L. And all year we were told, you got to study for the WASL to, you know, to graduate. I think, I think we were like the test case in future years, they were going to require it for graduation. So we were like the test, like we didn't have to pass this test to graduate, but we were like the, the pilot episode. We were the pilot episode. We were the prototype, something like that. And so they gave us an incentive because it wasn't required to pass and they still wanted people to have some kind of incentive to pass it. They told us if you pass this test, seniors will get a pass that allows them to leave for lunch every day because we weren't allowed to leave the school at lunch. And, you know, many people passed it for that very reason. And then they never gave us the pass to leave. They never gave us our, our lunch pass to leave campus during lunch. And so they lied to us, you know, and I mean, I, I'm still hurting over it. It still hurts to this day. It still hurts. I, w- yeah, I wish I could have left for lunch. I, I wish I could have left for lunch. You know, it's like I, I'm still heartbroken to this day that I couldn't leave for a half hour every day of my senior year. Of course, we still did. Of course, we snuck off, things like that. But. You know, they lied to us. And so I wrote a rant about that. I called him out. And that was the nice thing is my teacher, you know, she she let us say pretty much whatever we wanted. She was awesome. Mrs. Colbreeze. I didn't stay in touch with her. It's one of the teachers that, you know, I, I would have liked to have stayed in touch with maybe. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard to stay in touch with your high school teachers. You know, it's just it's kind of hard. But uh, Miss Colbreeze, she let us do a lot. She let us, you know, there was a guy my junior year. He was a senior, this nerdy guy an unsuspecting pothead and he wrote this really great article advocating marijuana and that was published in our high school newspaper in 2003 that's crazy you know a high school newspaper when marijuana is a decade away from becoming legal and none of us could have imagined it then not only could none of us have imagined that marijuana would be legal in a decade, but we couldn't imagine that it would then be considered an essential service and one of the only local businesses open during a global pandemic and economic shutdown. Hey, kids, in 15 years, this thing that you're sneaking around doing that you're getting arrested for, and I had friends in high school who got arrested. Two of them I can think of offhand. They got arrested for marijuana possession and this thing that you're getting arrested for is not only going to be legal in 10 years, but in 15 years, it's going to be considered one of the few essential local businesses in your community. One of the last strongholds of your local economy. So that's crazy. But this teacher, and I don't think she was pro-marijuana by any means. If I remember, she I, I believe she was a Catholic I believe she was an Irish Catholic. I could be wrong, but I remember getting the feeling that she she wasn't some super she was not she definitely did not identify as a radical leftist. I know that much. But she believed in free speech and she allowed this student to write an article about marijuana advocacy and it was really well written, you know, and and so this this was great. Um but anyway, point being is like, you know, when I wrote for this high school newspaper, it was you know, my entire thing was just ranting. And I've always, like I said, I'm a, I'm a manifesto oriented, oriented person. And I'm all about, I'm all about like, you know, we need to uh, wipe the slate clean and show people that manifestos don't have to be bitter, scary, terroristic, 
whatever, you know, whatever we think of when we hear the word manifesto, the Unabomber manifesto. I guess people like the communist manifesto, so it really depends on what the manifesto is about. But I am a manifesto-oriented person. That's just who I am. And that included, I wrote manifestos for my high school newspaper. So I know what it's like, my point being is like, I know what it's like to want to review everything. I'm a reviewer, and I'm not, less now than I ever was, but still, I know what it's like to want to review people, to review, and to think that my opinion really matters. I think that's the other part, but it does. You know, what you say matters in the same way that I was talking about, you know, easier said than done, but say it anyway. What you say matters. Your opinion matters. Your opinion has an impact, but you shouldn't think that you figured everything out because that's always the problem. And when I see people, you know, giving their opinions right now, or always, I always just think, do you think you have it figured out or are you just trying to figure it out? Because there's some people, the people who I tend to listen to are the ones who have opinions, as we all do. We, you will inevitably review things. You will inevitably criticize things. You will inevitably tell people what you think is right. But do it with some humility. Have confidence. I mean, I don't like these shaky, I don't like it when the whole foundation, and I hesitate to even call it a foundation, but I don't like it when someone's entire foundation is like this false humility, this shaky voice. I don't like that because I feel like that's actually a weird form of hubris. I feel like there's it's a weird form of hubris to try to present yourself as totally docile, you know, when when you're giving an opinion. So instead, like speak with some confidence, but make it well known that you're just trying to figure things out too. You know, like I was saying in a recent episode about conspiracy theories, the only conspiracy theory that I truly believe in is the one where people are trying to convince everyone that we're not all just improvising, that we're not all just trying to figure things out. And this show is an exercise in improvisation. Even though I think about some things and those are what make me want to record, as you can fucking tell, I'm trying not to swear as much. I was talking to a friend of mine last night about that. I'm just trying not to swear as much, but sometimes you got to. Just like how you have to review things. You know, sometimes you got to do it. Sometimes that's just the right way to express yourself, but I'm just trying not to swear as much. And because this show is very improvised, it means sometimes maybe the train of thought isn't consistent. Maybe maybe things go all over the place. I know this episode started about guns and then switched gears to me talking about my high school newspaper. But every time I hear myself swear, I think of this girl in college so now we're just going through my whole history of schooling. But this girl in college, and she was a twin lesbian. And not that that matters, but I, I like people to know like the kind of person someone is. And it's, there's no judgment there. You know, I have no judgment for someone's orientation. But just she's, she's a twin, and, and they were both lesbians, like these twins. And 
I could tell she probably grew up in a, a constricted household. I just got that impression. And she would just constantly swear in class. And you could tell it was because it was finally her opportunity to swear. And because we went to a weirdo liberal arts college, the Evergreen State College, look it up. Just look it up and you'll you'll see. You'll know what, what that's all about. And uh, she knew that she, she could get away with swearing. It was a very liberal environment. And it was her opportunity to drop those F-bombs in class discussions. And she would do it so much that we all started just rolling our eyes. And I remember the professor who was, he looked like if Anderson Cooper was completely bald, and this guy was gay too. I don't know why I'm just like letting you know everybody's sexual preferences here, but it's just interesting. You know, people are interesting. Uh, but like this this teacher, he was, you know, one of those like really refined gay men. <laughs> And uh, but he looked he looked like Anderson Cooper, like coincidentally. But if all of his if his eyebrows fell off and his hair fell out, that's kind of what he looked like. I really liked that guy. He was great. Uh, probably the best professor I had, really. And he, though, I remember he, finally it got to the point where he didn't scold her or anything, but she would swear and, he, and he'd just go. Tuh, tuh. And uh that's a good response. I like that human response where it's just like, you're not even going to say anything. You're not even going to, you're not even going to like respond to what someone's saying, but you just let it be known that you're just over it. You know, you're just like, I would love to know who the first person was that did that. I would love to know who the caveman was who, who went, or rolled his eyes when eye rolling became the universal symbol of just not even it's because like the, I, the thing I like about eye rolling is it's not necessarily hateful. It's just sort of, and it's, it's so uncomfortable for the person doing it. Like I don't roll my eyes because it just doesn't, my eyes are sensitive and it doesn't feel good. And so I'd rather not make myself feel worse than I already do if something makes me want to roll my eyes. But I'd love to know who the first person was to roll their eyes. It was probably a cave woman. Uh, some some cave man was saying something, some bullshit. And a cave woman just had to find a subtle way to communicate that. But the ch, ch, you know, and I, I feel myself, I feel that way a lot. I feel like t like I see that, and I see that when I see people reviewing things or criticizing things or acting like they know what's right or what's wrong. And and I expect that would be a common response to this show. I, I hope that when people listen to this show, they have plenty of moments. I'd prefer they don't roll their eyes because I, I don't want them to feel the discomfort of straining your eyes up into the back of your head. But if you're listening to this show and anything bothers you about it, just, just make that noise. Just do that. That seems like a good response to anything. You communicate that you don't approve, but you don't really engage either. But I mean, the best thing to do is just not engage at all, not even make a sound. And that's an exercise, learning how to do that. Realizing that you don't necessarily need to be the standard bearer waving the flag of truth to make truth exist. If you believe something is true, you don't necessarily need to put it on a flag and wave it. Sometimes you need to. 
Sometimes we do need people to speak honestly and openly and loudly and clearly. But it's not necessarily your job. And just because something is true doesn't mean it won't be true if you don't say something. Because the nice thing about true truth, true truth, that's the my favorite rapper, true truth. Um, but the, the nice thing about um, little truth, um, <laughs> the nice thing about true truth is that it doesn't require you to verbalize it in, in order for it to exist. If you think something is true and only you or only select people if if some if you think something is true and it requires you to vocalize that in order for it to exist in order for it to be real then it's a fleeting truth and that doesn't mean it's unimportant like i always use the example of like the guy who steals the old lady's purse and you're a witness you know go testify testify against that mugger that purse stealer the truth in that instance it's a fleeting truth there was a moment in time where this guy stole an old woman's purse and he should be prosecuted. He should be. And, and you were the witness, so you need to speak that truth, but it's still a fleeting truth. Something happened in a moment in time and you were a witness to that. It's kind of like whistleblowers. Sometimes someone does have to blow the whistle. Sometimes you do have to say something. But in that instance, it's not even about your opinion. All you have to do is describe what you saw. And I've been going through a lot of courtroom testimony lately, and I just, I think I just need to become a lawyer, honestly. My mom, on my mom's deathbed, she had a, a dream. I may have mentioned this, but she had a kind of a, a fever dream that I went to school and became a lawyer. And I'm like, you know, if anything is going to motivate you to pursue a certain goal, your mom having a weird dream right before she passes away, that's incredible. You know, maybe I should be a lawyer, but I've been reading a lot of courtroom testimony and it's, it's amazing when a witness start to, starts to try to explain something, they cut them off, they object right away, whether the judge intervenes or whether the, the counsel for the opposite side steps in and says objection. You know, you, the, way that a, the way that somebody has to be examined, the way that a witness has to be examined in a court of law goes by, it asks for a description at every level. Each question should elicit a straightforward description of something, an event, a person. It's a, it's a descriptive process. And the fact that that's done in a court of law tells you everything you need to know. The importance of describing opposed to explaining. Because in, in, an explanation is inherently biased. An explanation is inherently biased. A description might not be right. You might not have seen what you saw. The guy might have been wearing a blue shirt, not a green shirt. But that's what you saw. That's what you remember. And so you're asked to describe. And your description will be compared to another description. And the closest we can come to an explanation is when we have a bunch of different dis descriptions of an object. And it's only through all of those different perspectives that we can even begin to understand what that object is, which is why multiple witnesses are necessary in court. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating that that plays out as part of our legal process, and that's not random.
That's not arbitrary. And if you're reading transcripts of courtroom testimony, it can get a little bit trying and annoying because the witness will just start to say something and they cut them off. But there's a reason why that there's a reason why that system developed a certain way. And I have a lot of respect for the legal system. I really do. As much as I don't agree with everything and as much as it doesn't play necessarily to our emotional, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily play to our emotions. It's good that it doesn't. It's, it's a damn good thing that the legal system isn't based solely around our emotions and our emotions are a part of it. Of course they are. Witnesses get upset. Sometimes a, a particularly aggressive prosecutor will ask a witness certain questions and the witness starts firing back. They get emotional. So, you know, it's not that emotions don't exist in the courtroom, but the way our legal system is set up, the way that a trial is set up is to minimize the amount of emotion and to minimize the amount of explanation and opinion and ask for description. But um, that's been on my mind a lot lately, just reading this testimony where I'm just, I didn't, you know, I've been on this kick for years now about, you know, don't explain, describe. And, and I didn't realize that the legal system was set up that way until recently, until just reading this testimony recently, it hit me like a light bulb that the legal process is designed that way. And that's not random. That's not arbitrary. That's something that we had to develop over time. It's objectivity, as close to objectivity as we can get. And objectivity, what's in that word? Object. And when I talk about the truth, the truth is an object. And when we think of the real true truth, we think of it as the objective truth. So none of this is just arbitrary. None of this is random. The truth is an object, and to be objective means that it is something that doesn't belong to one particular view. It is not subjective. It is not subjected to you. So when you have something that is an objective truth, you, you think of it like that is the object that we are all looking at, and we only have a limited view into it. And to try to explain what that object is, is audacious and possibly dishonest and manipulative, even unintentionally. So what can you do? You can describe that object. And I guess that does come full circle, full spiral. I'm going to trademark that, full spiral. But that does come full spiral back to gun control. Because when I say I'm not pro-gun or anti-gun, I'm just gun, I'm trying to look at the objective fact that guns exist and we're not going to take them all away because what are you going to do with them? Let's round up every single gun and bury it. Well, a lot of people are going to die if that happens. A lot of people are going to die if that happens and that's worse than the, the deaths that will come from trying to take guns away are going to far outnumber the deaths that are going to happen from guns simply being in people's hands. And I believe that. That sounds dramatic, but I do believe that. I believe if things got to that point, 
there would probably be a lot of other stuff going on too. It wouldn't just be in a vacuum where we suddenly decide to take guns away from Americans. A lot of other social and political issues would be going on. And imagine if that happened right now. I think this is a great example, because imagine if we tried to take guns away from people right now, with people in the despairing state that they're in over the virus, over the economy, and the political tension that goes along with that. Imagine if you tried to take guns away from the people who are like storming the Capitol to protest quarantine. Imagine if you tried to take their guns out of their hands right now. You think mass shootings are bad as they are. You know, consider that for sure. And it's not that I'm pro-gun. It's not that I'm anti-gun. I'm simply gun. Guns are an object. And I recognize the objective truth that these machines, these devices, these tools, these weapons, and these decorations, and they are all of the above. Guns are all of those things. They exist. And we all have different views on them. And... All we can do is describe them, what they do, what people do with them. And we're always trying to come up with an explanation for guns, for mass shootings. And everybody disagrees over that. We all acknowledge the objective truth that guns exist and people use them to kill people. They use them for all kinds of things, but they use them to kill people, sometimes in large groups. And it's horrifying. Especially when you realize who these shooters are, the types of people they are. You know, if I ever get killed by someone, if I ever, I want my, I want my um, executioner to be cool. You know what I mean? Like, like, I want my executioner to be someone that I respect. I want my executioner to be Darth Vader. I don't want it to be, you know you know, the types of people we see doing mass shootings. I don't want to get killed by that type of person, man. I want my executioner to be impressive in some way. And, and not that it's impressive to execute somebody, but, you know, when we see like the types of people these mass shooters are, I mean, it's like they're indefensible, indefensible. And the only people who like them are the other people who are similar to them or who relate to them. They're not the people who are, I mean, because that's something that everybody can pretty much agree on, on the pro-gun and anti-gun side, is that the vast majority of NRA members do not relate to, nor do they support mass shooters. And so that's some common ground. Everybody agrees that there should not be mass shooters. And everybody agrees that if you have to go, if you have to be executed by another human being, you don't want them to be those types of kids. And here I am reviewing them. I'm reviewing mass shooters right now. These people who already feel reviewed, you know, because you think about a mass shooter and whenever a mass shooting comes up, these kids basically, they feel heavily criticized, but they also criticize everything and everyone else. So they are basically critics, but they also feel criticized. Whew. And the strange thing is, is that it's not actually about the guns, even though they undeniably used guns. Even though if you were to describe a mass shooting, you would say they used an assault rifle to kill a bunch of people. 
That's not a review. That's not an explanation, but people try to find the explanation. It's video games. It's bullies. It's a chemical imbalance. It's environmental. It's everything. And that's what I believe. I haven't figured it out, but until I can rule anything out, I'm sticking with my theory that everything influences everything. Everything feeds into what a mass shooter does. Everything feeds into what a pacifist who devotes their life to some monastic, you know, you know what I mean? Where it's like every extreme is equally influenced by everything. And all we can do is describe our experience, describe what we see. And it's only through all of our descriptions of our common experiences that we can even come close to an explanation. But it should tell you something that through all these thousands of years, 2000, <laughs> through these 2000 years, through these 10,000 years, through these million years, and we can't even agree on that. Not to, that's a whole other topic, but we can't even agree on how long we've been around. I can tell you, I don't know. I don't know how long we've been around. Um, but, uh, you know, it should tell you something that through all these years, through all these descriptions, through all these processes of coming together and going apart, we still haven't found the explanation. We are still improvising. So what can you do? Well, continue to, to describe. Imagine when you are asked a question, imagine you are in court, but a much more open and beautiful court filled with chirping birds, you know, beautiful weather, whatever you consider beautiful, whether it's rain or sun or snow or all of the above. I like it all. I like all the weather. I like deserts. I like forests. I like mountains. I like water. But, you know, imagine that you are in the most beautiful courtroom you've ever been in and simply describe what you see or what you saw. And don't try to explain because explanation isn't yours to offer. Explanation comes from everybody's description of everything coming together. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.